John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah glory, Welcome glory, to War of the Rebellion Stories of the Civil War I'm your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, The Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861-1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. And we continue on at Reminiscence of Hatcher's Run and Five Forks by Surgeon Elias A. Kitchen. Immediately after the Battle of the Boyton Plank Road, on recommendation of Dr. Lemoyne, Surgeon-in-Chief of General Gregg's Cavalry Division, the writer was promoted from Assistant Surgeon of the 21st Pennsylvania Cavalry to the position of Surgeon of the 155th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, then serving in the advanced skirmish lines and trenches at Petersburg. Dr. J.A.E. Reed, of the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers, acting brigade surgeon, had resigned in January 1865. The first hard-fought battle after the writer assumed the position of surgeon of the 155th was the severe engagement at Hatcher's Run. The field hospital was located in a house with a room large enough to afford a space for six operating tables, and all were needed and used by the surgeon. The wounded were brought in in large numbers, and amputations of arms and legs became so numerous that the dismembered limbs were thrown out of the windows until they made piles as high as the window sills. During a lull in the Battle of Five Forks, General Pearson came to the writer and reported that a lieutenant of the 155th Regiment had been wounded in the knee, and asked the writer to save him, saying, quote, I will give you a thousand dollars, Kitchen, to save the brave Lieutenant Thomas Dunn, unquote. An examination was made, and an effort made to extract the bullet from the wounded man's knee. But after the surgeons got ready to operate, the surgeon of the division advised a short delay and in an hour the brave lieutenant was dead. In the many cases, owing to the crowding of the hospitals, or slow removal from the field, prompt medical services to all wounded was impossible. The flag of truce at Appomattox came in through the line of the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers on the morning of April 9, 1865. A request for a surgeon to dress a wounded Confederate soldier came in at the same time from the truce-bearer. The writer answered the request promptly, and in doing so he believes he has the distinction of dressing the wound of the last Confederate soldier wounded at Appomattox. After performing this duty, and during the suspension of hostilities resulting from the flag of truce, the writer went down towards the Confederate army. He saw, standing under an apple tree, Four officers, General Babcock of General Grant's staff, General Robert E. Lee, commander of the Confederate Army, also two Confederate officers of high rank, 
all apparently awaiting the arrival of General Grant. The Confederates around took the surrender good-naturedly, but some of the officers looked very cross. When the Confederates were ready to disband, a surgeon of an Alabama regiment came to the rider and made himself known as a mason, asking for the loan of fifty dollars to enable him to get home. The rider handed him the money. Mrs. Kitchen, the rider's wife, received a check for the loan before the rider reached home. This Confederate's name is William F. Beard, M.D., and his residence, Shelbyville, Kentucky. At the Front And in the Hospital By Corporal Franklin Gilmore, Company A The writer enlisted in the Old Splain Building, corner of Fifth Avenue and Smithfield Street, on August 18, 1862, in a company called the Highland Guards, being recruited by Captain A. L. Pearson, Edward A. Montooth, and Frank J. Picard, which later became Company A, 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers. With other companies being recruited at that time, the recruits of Company A were marched to Camp Howe, a miserable, squalid-looking place in Oakland, after the war known as Linden Grove, a famous picnic ground. To keep the fresh recruits in the camp, in absence of guns, the guards were armed with clubs. The first meal in this camp, which was without a caterer of any kind, was left to the writer to prepare. Captain Pearson's recruits were very hungry on arriving at the camp in the evening, and the writer was detailed to ask Captain Pearson whether he could see the cook, and would like to know what time that worthy would announce supper. Captain Pearson promptly disclaimed any knowledge of such an official as a cook for the camp, and declared that it looked as if supper would not be had until morning, as he saw no arrangements being made for it. The writer, even at the tender age of sixteen, had followed the river, and had some slight experience in cookery. Observing that workmen about the camp were using large heated pans for gravel roofing the new barracks, and two barrels of potatoes being discovered in camp, Pearson's recruits soon rolled the same over to the pans, dumped them in, and covered them with hot gravel. Salt was borrowed or stolen, and completed the menu of the first feast in camp. Left Behind at Fredericksburg After the charge on Mary's Heights, under Burnside, Colonel Allen detailed the writer and some others of the regiment for guard duty at the crowded hospitals, the churches, public buildings, and the courthouse of Fredericksburg. The writer went on duty at the courthouse, where the surgeons were kept busy amputating and operating the day and a half the writer was on guard duty. No one on this guard duty had an intimation of the Union armies retreating north of the Rappahannock, as all reports indicated that Burnside was bent on renewing his senseless assault the next morning. To the great surprise of all the guards thus placed on duty, early that morning it was discovered that Burnside's whole army had retreated across the pontoons and that his men on hospital guard duty had received no notice, and were consequently abandoned to their fate. Fortunately, the morning was foggy, and the Confederates were a little late discovering the retreat. The writer, 
and other hospital guards gathered up their effects and hastened down the streets to the riverbank, where they found all the pontoon bridges had been lifted, and all the troops and trains were already north of the Rappahannock. It was soon realized that the hospital guards had been abandoned. The deserted details soon gathered up materials for rafts on which to place their knapsacks, guns, and accoutrements. And then they waded into the river, cold and icy as it was. It was the choice of a cold bath or Libby prison, and they preferred the former. Three hundred hospital guards thus abandoned escaped to the north side of the Rappahannock in this manner. With Bucktails at Gettysburg At Little Round Top, on the afternoon of July 3rd, the writer secured permission to leave the company ranks to join details of the Bucktails and Burdan's sharpshooters, who were on the slopes of Little Round Top, and from behind rocks in front of the position of the 155th, were drawing beads on Confederate sharpshooters concealed in Devil's Den close by. An exciting experience was had on one of the writer's advances close to the Devil's Den. An armed Confederate demanded that the writer surrendered. This demand was promptly declined, as the writer dropped behind a most convenient rock. In the movements, the tables were turned, and the Confederate accepted the demand of the writer for an unconditional surrender. The writer escorted his prisoner up the hill, reporting to Adjutant Montooth, and the Confederate was turned over to the Division Provost Marshal. The third day, after the opening of Grant's Wilderness Campaign, after the night march to Spotsylvania, the regiment was promptly called on battle line on May 8th. Air's Brigade, musicians playing stirring music. It has been called Laurel Hill, Allsop's Farm, and Spotsylvania. The writer identifies it as the battle in which he was first wounded. Lieutenant Jack Campbell, of Company A, loaned the writer a seven-shooter revolver, which came in handy when the company got into close quarters, as was done there. It was nip and tuck in the race between the contending armies, which should gain the crest of the hill first. The Fifth Corps troops beat the enemy by a short distance, then began the battle for possession of the hill. The rider was engaged at this point in aiming at a Johnny, and the Johnny was reciprocating in kind. The rider has never been able to learn whether his aim was good, but he does know that the Johnny's was. The rider was clipped by a mini-ball in the right leg below the knee. The bullet cut into the bone, and the rider, dropping his gun, rolled down the hill. After lying still in great pain for a while, Davy Lloyd, of Company A, appeared. And, being in the ambulance corps, he cut a hickory crutch. Thus equipped, the rider rejoined his company, keeping up for several days. The wound becoming gangrened, the regimental surgeon ordered his removal to a field hospital. From there, the rider was sent by boat to Satterley Hospital, Philadelphia, where he remained for several weeks when, at his own request, he was allowed to rejoin the regiment, then in front of Petersburg. At Hatcher's Run, the rider's turn again came for an entry on the casualty report of severely wounded the mini-ball entering the right hip and passing nearly through the leg. 
The writer's comrades supported him and prevented him being captured. A little German surgeon, on duty at the field hospital, extracted the bullet from the writer's leg. This surgeon remarked after the operation, quote, Well, I puts this mini pal in your plow's pocket. Maybe you wants to keep him. Unquote. The writer said he did. And he has him yet. In this action, Samuel W. Smith of Company A was killed. He had served faithfully in the 62nd Pennsylvania Volunteers, and was on the company's roll by transfer when that regiment left for home. He was a faithful, brave soldier. The writer, after treatment in various hospitals, was transferred to the West Penn Hospital, Pittsburgh. En route home, the writer was obliged to leave the train at York, Pennsylvania, because of pain and suffering of his wound. The surgeons opened it up and extracted a piece of blouse. The writer remained at the West Penn Hospital until after the close of war, being kept under constant treatment, the wound baffling the best surgeons in its treatment. From this hospital, the writer was taken in a carriage to witness the return of and reception given to the 155th Regiment on its return from the war by the city of Pittsburgh. The grand dinner and exercises at Old City Hall, in honor of the regiment and the exhibition of Zouave Drill in the West Common, Allegheny, now Northside, were all attended by the writer. During the writer's long treatment for wounds at the hospital in Philadelphia and at the West Penn Hospital in Pittsburgh, the trained nurses and attendants were the good sisters of mercy, who ministered night and day most faithfully, cheerfully, and without pay to the thousands of sick and wounded soldiers who were undergoing treatment in those institutions. Their zeal and affection and solicitude as experienced by the writer, cannot be surpassed by that of the most devoted mother or sister of one's own blood. Though not of their creed, the writer has ever felt that the Union cause and the suffering soldiers could never express too much gratitude for the work of these angels of mercy during the Civil War. The Flag of the 155th By Color Sergeant Thomas C. Lawson Company H is what we'll pick up next week. I know, I know, this is a short episode. I think I'm clocking it at something like 15 minutes. But don't worry, don't worry. This podcast is going to last for a little bit longer. I have a surprise for you. And it has to do with what was talked about earlier in this episode. And we'll get to it and wrap it up all in a nice little bow at the very end. Memoirs of the Pittsburgh Sisters of Mercy April 8, 1896 Mr. G. Barton, Respected Sir In response to your circular of March 26th, Mother Superior desired me to give you the following brief account of the part taken by our sisters in the service of the sick and wounded soldiers during the Civil War. In the autumn of 1862, application was made by the authorities at Washington to our Mother Superior for sisters to take charge of the wounded soldiers in the Stanton Hospital, Washington, D.C. Accordingly, four sisters were appointed for the work, who prepared hastily 
and departed for the scene of duty, arriving at their destination November 26th. Finding that the Stanton, a long row of frame buildings, was not ready for occupation, the sisters remained for a few days with the members of the Baltimore community, founded some years before from Pittsburgh. In a short time, the new hospital was opened and the sisters repaired thither, and began their work by caring for 130 wounded soldiers just from the front. December 8th, four others arrived from Pittsburgh, making in all eight, which number constituted the staff of sisters engaged in the Stanton Hospital at any one time. Though of these, some did not remain until the close, but were relieved as circumstances required by sisters from home taking their places. These changes were not made without necessity, as the health of several was hopelessly injured by the pressure of labor, which the duties entailed, as in addition to the bodily fatigue, incident to the care of so many patients, was added much mental anxiety, resulting from the responsibility attending the charge of grave cases, the successful issue of which depended much on the vigilance of the nurse. Too much praise cannot be given to the officials of this establishment for their careful supervision, attention to the patients, and their unvarying kindness and the confidence reposed in the sisters. The surgeon in charge, Dr. John A. Liddell, and his assistant, Dr. Philip Davis, deserve special mention. Abundant supplies of everything needful for the sick was most liberally provided in clothing, food, drugs, etc. As far as possible, no wish of the poor fellows, whether blue or gray, was left ungratified. This was a source of great satisfaction to the sisters, and lightened considerably their cares. What has been said of the work of sisters in other places can be repeated here. Their labors were arduous and continual. After every battle, numbers of wounded were brought in and received from the sisters' unwearied attention day and night. As a rule, the soldiers appreciated the word of the sisters and regarded them as their best friends. Often, when conscious that all hope of recovery was gone, would they confide to the sisters their last wishes and messages to loved ones far away. Frequently, they were called to write letters to absent friends. These and similar acts of kindness to say nothing of the words of sympathy and encouragement uttered to the poor sufferers, worn out with pain of body and trouble of mind, made the day more than full. Pressed down and running over, of such acts as merited a reward from him, who promised to note even a cup of cold water given in his name. While ministering to the poor shattered body, the soul was not neglected. Many were the spoils gained by heaven, sometimes from very unpromising subjects. The sisters frequently had the consolation of witnessing happy deathbed in many cases of persons whom, amid less favorable surroundings, might not have had this great blessing. Scenes like these more than repaid the sisters for all their labors. Entire freedom of conscience was afforded. Each patient was at liberty to summon the spiritual advisor he preferred. The Jesuit fathers attended the Catholics. Reverend fathers, Wiget, Brady, and Roquefort, were untiring in their efforts to console the sick and fortify the dying with the consolations of our holy religion. The sisters remained at Stanton until the close of the war, 
when happily their services being no longer required, they returned to Pittsburgh, where they resumed their usual avocations. In Pittsburgh, the West Penn Hospital was used by the government for a military hospital, principally for Pennsylvania soldiers, and here such sick and disabled were sent as were sufficiently recovered to bear the fatigue of transportation from Washington or other places, to make room for cases direct from the field of battle. Our sisters were invited to give their services here, which they cheerfully did early in 1863. In the hospital, the sisters experienced the same courtesy from the officers as was extended to them elsewhere, every arrangement compatible with existing circumstances being made to lighten their duties. In both the hospitals, a chapel was fitted up, and Mass was celebrated daily when such convalescent patients as desired were at liberty to attend. In Washington and Pittsburgh, the members of the Sanitary Commission, ladies and gentlemen, gave very efficient aid towards alleviating the condition of the patients by providing delicacies, reading matter, and after every visit they made, leaving supplies in the hands of the sisters to distribute at discretion. The sisters remained at the West Penn Hospital until peace was restored, and all the patients discharged or cared for in other institutions. As we are speaking of the Stanton, where many pathetic occurrences were seen and heard, one may be given here, as related by Sister M. Regina Cosgrave to Sister M. Antonio Gallagher. After the return of the former from the Stanton, the story was recalled by the appearance of Wooden Will at night school, presided over by Sisters M. Regina and Antonio, called respectively by the boys, Sister Virgilius and Altoona. Sister M. Antonio, Mercedes, was transferred from St. Mary's, Webster Ave, to St. Xavier's, and was the case on many occasions. She drowned their disappointment in rhyme. The story of Wooden Will opens in September in the famous Stanton Hospital, Washington, just after one of the dreadful battles of the day. Terrible and exciting is the scene. Ambulances full of wounded sufferers are drawing up. Men, pale, bleeding, shattered, are carried into the wards. Surgeons have labored all night. Attendants are ubiquitous, with bandages, lint, and medicine. And gliding between the long rows of beds are the sisters, ministering to the poor heroes whose lifeblood paid the price of a victory. How soothingly the gentle voice of whispered prayer fell upon the quickened ear of those suffering men. There are some of them still living, whose hair has grown gray, and yet their dim eyes glow and moisten at the name of the gentle sister who nursed them back to life. But alas, for the vacant place in a thousand homes, now many were not brought back to life. And here, today, how many brave boys are gasping their last, far away from home and kindred. About midway in one of the wards lies a dying soldier, and a sister of mercy is kneeling beside the camp bed, quietly praying. The attendants hush their footsteps as they pass the bed, but no one pauses, for the sight is a familiar one. The nun holds the little crucifix before an ashen face, 
and the prayers of his childhood, Our Father, Hail Mary, fell on his ear. Among the first to be brought in from the field, he had made his peace from God, and his life is passing away with the waning sunlight. He is very young, almost boyish, and the features are as finely cut as a woman's. Short, pale, reddish curls are tossed back from the forehead and brush the pillow, setting the white face in a sort of aureole. Around his neck is a string, and a small medal of Our Lady lies on his breast. His hand gropes for it, the sister guides it, and the touch seems to rouse him from the stupor. Fixing his eyes on the sister's face, he tries to smile a recognition. The stiffened lips form words. Get me. Someone from Pittsburgh. I am from Pittsburgh, said the sister. A glad flash shot from the dark eyes. Convent? At Cathedral? he asked. Yes, my boy. That's where we belong. What can I do for you? You have friends in Pittsburgh? Tell me your message for them. When I go back. A pleading look came into the large eyes, and a spasm of pain caught the corners of the mouth. The sister lifted the medal and touched it there. He spoke again, and with a stronger voice, My wife Mary lives there. Poor girl. She's not much past eighteen, and our baby Willie is just born. I never saw him. God bless them both. He paused for breath, and the sister moistened his lips. Then a wan, faint smile came to the great eyes and pale face. Mary writes that the baby has two little fingers on the left hand, and they want to hurt the baby. Tell her no cutting up that boy, no matter what they say. The smile died away. Lord, help, gasped the cold lips, as a gray shadow fell on the face. The sister wept as she prayed. Swiftly the breath came. Up, up like the pulsing of the sea. Fainter and farther away as the tide goes out, and the sister thought of the homely tenderness of that boyish father whose blood was draining from his crushed body, and yet whose death agony was full of thought that no suffering should come to the misformed little hand of the babe he would never see. And as she gazed, the great pause came. The stillness we all have suddenly felt. The great judge was there, and the fate of a soul was decided before that awful, invisible court we must all face. Requiasquat. She closed the glazed eyes, and drew the sheet over the calm face, and sighed to think of the child widow and helpless orphan boy. Alas, that he died without giving her a clue. How could she give the message of that pathetic blessing? But the attendants carry away the dead. There is no time for regrets or fears. Again, she stands by the suffering, and so the months pass. The war is over. Back to their convent go the sisters. And only in reminiscence do we meet the scenes of war.
we are again in Pittsburgh. Twelve years have passed away, and the sister who closed the eyes of the Pittsburgh boy is at her desk this evening in the convent schoolroom. She did not forget the dying message, but so far all search has been in vain. The night boys are all there. They are rough, unkempt lads, with ragged clothes and bare feet, but all look reverently at the black-robed figure, who firmly and gently points out the law to each. There is silence in the room, and fifty earnest faces bend laboriously over copybooks and hold the pen with perspiring effort. Suddenly, there is a scuffle at the door. Up rise the heads. Two lads enter, dragging between them a small figure who resists vigorously. Before they have advanced two yards, the small figure breaks away and vanishes. The two leaders look dismayed under the grave eyes of the nun as a voice is heard. Boys, what does this mean? The delinquents hang their heads a moment, and then look up shyly under the broad side of indignant glances from their fellows at the desks. Sister, said one in a low voice, it's wooden will. It's what? inquired the sister, with a puzzled look on her face. Sister, it's wooden will, a little louder. Wooden will? Who is that? Sister, it's that boy. Not for the world would these youngsters omit the sacred title, sister. It prefaces every word and finds entrance half a dozen times in every sentence. That boy, repeated the nun. Well, why doesn't he come in? Sister, he wants to, but he's scared. He says you uns is like heaven in here and he ain't fit, was the answer. And he hangs round the door every night, and we pulled him in tonight to give him a show. The nun's heart went out to the little vagrant, and she said sympathetically, Why he should not be afraid. He'll be very welcome. Can't some of you speak to his mother? He ain't got one, was the quick response. Poor little fellow, sighed the sister, with great tenderness. Well then, his father or his friends. Father dead, too. Wooden Will ain't got nobody but himself. But he's a Catholic all the same, was the reply. Now, boys, said the earnest voice of the nun, this will never do. We must have poor Wooden Will here at school. Any boy that brings that lad to me by coaxing, or any other way that doesn't hurt him, shall get a beautiful medal of Our Lady. Now you must continue your writing. In a moment, all were silent again. The evening's work went on, but there was an uneasy look on the faces of the latecomers, which did not escape the eyes of the religious. Her experience of human nature in children told her where the silver medal would go, and she stifled a smile of triumph at the hope of success so soon. The last exercise was concluded, the last prayer said, when the latecomers made a straight line towards the door and vanished. Soon, just as the last boy had gone and the lights were nearly all extinguished, they reappeared, puffing vigorously, with the small figure known as Wooden Will between them. The mode of conveyance was slightly changed, however. One boy had the two struggling arms, the other the two kicking bare feet. 
and laying their prize before the astonished religious, they stood with an air of triumph in silence. Gracious, ejaculated the sister, and her companion came to her side, vainly striving to repress her laughter. The little stranger being freed from the grasp of his captors made a sort of revolution with his small person, and stood on his feet before the nuns. Then, finding no escape, pulled off his cap, which had remained on his head during the whole scuffle. A pretty, pale, begrimed face appeared, lit with large, frightened brown eyes and a halo of light reddish short curls around his unkept head. The sister puzzled her brains a second. Where on earth had she seen him before? My dear child, said she, I am so sorry you were afraid to come to school. But you don't know how glad we are to see the boys coming to us. What is your name? Will, was the half-audible reply. What is your last name? Ain't got none. Only Will. Sister, a voice came rather meekly from one of the two captors. Us fellows call him Wooden Will, cause he sleeps under the woodpiles. And, sister, which of us two fellows gets the medal? Roused to a sense of the state of affairs in this direction, the nun opened her desk and presented each of the proud and happy lads a good-sized silver medal of Our Lady, which they received with all the dignity of conscious worth, and holding tightly in their hard hands, quickly took their departure, leaving wooden will at the mercy of the two religious, with an uneasy look on his face. "'Now will,' said the sister, gently making him sit down. I want you to tell me something about yourself, for we are your friends, and we want to help you be comfortable and happy. Have you had your supper? Never get any real supper, murmured Will. The sister made a sign to her companion, who left the room and returned in a short time with a bowl of milk, a piece of cold chicken and ham, buttered rolls, and some clear, trembling jelly in a small glass dish. Will's brown eyes changed their expression as the viands were placed on a desk before him, and at the first word of command he laid siege to the plate. The nuns moved around the room attending to various duties until he finished, and, as his restraint seemed somewhat removed, he was ready to talk. Do you uns keep little fellers all night? Not here, Will was the reply. Where do you live? Don't live nowhere. Where do you sleep at night? Under woodpiles or on the hash heaps and the rolling mills? Where do you get your meals? Don't get no meals. I mean, where do you get your breakfast and dinner? Do you board anywhere? Or haven't you any relatives or friends? Ain't got no relatives. Sometimes old Peter used to let me drive his cart and I get a dime blackened boots, and I buy a sandwich where I sell papers, and buy a cup of milk, don't board nowhere, costs a feller too much. Do my own washing, too. My other shirt is buried down on the river bank in a box. Never had no friends. I mean friends, what lets you into their houses and keeps you. The fellers and my best friends, they often give me a lift when I get a pain here. And the poor child placed his hand on his chest, and coughed a short, 
dry cough, an emphatic comment on these enlightened days of Christian charity and humane societies. But my child, said the sister, on whose face the deepest sympathy was manifested, did you never have any home or friends? Where did your mother die? Can't mind it much, it's so long ago, said Will. I ain't got one that owns me. No aunts or uncles or granny, or anyone. Poor boy, how old are you? Near twelve, I guess. And what about being in the rolling mills? Surely you've had better places. Don't like no places where folks kick you, and call your names, and every place I was at, they did that, so I scooted, cause when I got right scared, the blood used to come up in my mouth. Poor little fellow, sighed the nun. Do you know your prayers? What's them? Your prayers. Why, our Father, you say when you speak to God. God? Yes, I know lots of cuss words. Oh, my poor child, don't you know Hail Mary, full of grace? You're a Catholic, are you? Yes, I know Hail Mary, full of grace. I say that every day, and twice on Sunday. And he repeated the Hail Mary perfectly. Do you never go to church? To the Catholic church? Ain't got no clothes good enough to go to church. Sometimes I sneaked in when church was out, and it was awful solemn and heavenly, like this place here, with pictures and lots of things, and a jolly little fence with carpet inside, and big chairs and something like a big white monument, only too long for that, and lordy, here Will's enthusiasm made him forget his fear, and he waxed eloquent as his eyes sparkled. Lordy, but the guilt that was on that monument, and the big candles, and the gay crocks of roses and flowers, lordy, but it took my breath away, and I used to hunker down in front of it, and look at it all until I felt as if there wasn't no bad people out in the street to kick or to cuss, and as if I could lay there till I was dead. Then the brown eyes looked wistfully into the sister's face for a minute, and he went on. I used to watch you uns going down street, never speaking nor smiling, but kind of solemn. And I would have come in here like the other fellers, but I wasn't fit. I want to stay here because you uns talk so kind. But you are fit, my poor child, and you shall come every night. And you may stay here tonight if you wish. I will get you a nice bed, and tomorrow you can run errands for us, and make fires and do anything you are told, and we will teach you your prayers and your religion, and how to read and write, and how to be a good man some day. Are you sure you have no home, no friends, no place you would like better? No, sirree, ma'am, said Will emphatically. Well then. We will find you a corner tonight, and tomorrow we will talk more. Then she whispered a few words to the sister, and the latter left the room. Willie, can you bless yourself? Don't know. Can you do this? And the sister made the sign of the cross. I saw some of the fellers do it, and he lifted his left hand to try. It was a peculiar-looking little hand. And as the sister's eyes rested on it, she saw it had a sixth finger. A swift rush of thought brought her back to that deathbed scene in the hospital in the wartime, 
she seemed to see it all again, and to hear the painfully uttered words of the dying soldier lad, who had told her of his boy Willie, whom he had never seen. Could this be the boy? Might she now give the dying blessing that so often came before her mind like unfulfilled duty? Here was the sixth finger, that seemed to her like the sign of recognition, and then the resemblance that puzzled her when she first looked at Wooden Will. Again she observed the large brown eyes, the delicate feminine features, the pale reddish short curls. Was his mother's name Mary? All this time the boy looked steadily into her face as if he were reading his fate. Will, she said, did you ever see your father? No, ma'am. My father was killed in the war. He died in the Stanton Hospital. It says so in the front of the book that was my mother's. What else is in the book? Not then only. To my wife Mary, just before the battle. And right below that is, my dear husband died for his country in the Stanton Hospital. Old Peter give me the prayer book afore he died. And he said to keep it, because it was all my relatives left me. Who was old Peter? He knowed my mother, I guess. He was an old feller that had a cart. He's dead. The book ain't much, cept it was my mother's. And when did your mother die? She died afore old Peter. It was a good while ago. I can't mind it. I've been on the street with the feller since I could walk him most. I keep my mother's book buried in the box with my other shirt, on the river bank. I'll get it for you ones tomorrow. My child, said the nun, tenderly taking the little misformed hand in hers. God who lives in heaven, where I trust your dear father and mother are, sent you to me tonight. I was in the Stanton Hospital, miles away from here, nursing the soldiers during the war. And your poor father was carried in bleeding and wounded. When he was dying, he requested me to take his blessing to his wife Mary and his little Willie, who was not long born. He said the poor baby had a second little finger, and it was his dying wish not to hurt his child or have it cut off. You are the perfect picture of your father my child. The resemblance has puzzled me ever since I looked at you when you first came in. And when I saw this poor little hand and heard you say your father died at the Stanton, it all came back to me. And I feel that God has brought you to me in answer to my prayers. Your brave father died nobly, and his last words were of you and your mother with a prayer to God for his soul. And that is the end of our reading. I knew going into this episode, as soon as he mentioned the Sisters of Mercy, I had to find something from them. And what I found was this. This is from a book titled The Memoirs of the Pittsburgh Sisters of Mercy. It was published in 1918, along with a wide variety of other stories that they had, and, of course, Corporal Franklin Gilmore of Company A bringing up the Sisters of Mercy made me want to just read something from them. 
which I went and found. I will include that entire book. Of course, I pulled it straight from the Library of Congress. Several, but that was the one that I decided to end up with. And I'll go ahead and leave that in the show notes so you can take a look at it for yourself if you would like to. It's got some very interesting stories and some fantastic ones. I flipped through it for about three hours. (laughs) Oh, oh man. So really, really enjoyed it. I know the first article that was written by Surgeon Elias A. Kitchen was kind of short, but he did join the 155th a little bit late. And so he didn't add a whole lot to what surgeons have already talked about. So I don't know. Can you all just go ahead and look at your window? What window do you have right now? Just look at it. Can you see out of your window? Can you imagine a pile of arms and legs as high as your windowsill? Oh, that's so creepy and wild. I'm just I'm just so glad I was born in this time frame. Of course, Corporal Franklin, this poor guy, man, he joins the army and they're like, you know, you get to starve today. And he's like, ah, okay, well, I'm going to go steal some potatoes. (laughs) Oh, it's just great, man. What a great story. Being left behind at Fredericksburg. We talked about that, how much that sucks when it was brought up in the Richmond history for him to be able to like, yeah, I was one of the guys they left behind. This is how we got back across. Love it. Oh, not that he had to do it, but that he wrote it down. But I really enjoyed his quote, which was, it was the choice of a cold bath or Libby prison. And everyone preferred the former. It's just like, yeah, I would also choose swimming over prison. (laughs) I don't know about any of you, but him getting to hang out with the Bucktails and the Burdan sharpshooters, that's cool. And especially that he has a specific story from it. And to capture a rebel. Of course, the tide turned on him when him and a rebel were both aiming at each other, and the rebel got him. So, that was his first wound, right? But I know this is about the 155th. But, you know, when people bring up interesting things in their articles that they're writing, we're going to expand on it just a little bit. So with that, my friends, this episode has gone on long enough. That is for sure. I am getting some time done this weekend. I have been really lazy doing other things, mostly stuff about my house. (laughs) So... I have also been wearing, I think, all of my clothes long enough that I will post pictures of the merch on my website of me wearing it. You're not going to see my face, but you will see me wearing it. Uh, I did get one shirt that has a hole in it. I've It's good quality shirts, guys, and sweaters. I'll tell you that much. I've been using them around the house as like, maybe I shouldn't be, <laughs> but been using a... Um, one of my t-shirts around the house is just like an everyday work kind of shirt. So it's beaten up and I'll show you what it looks like. It looks really great, brand new, but faded. It still looks pretty nice, even with a couple holes in it. But those holes were not put there by bad craftsmanship, I should say. Those holes were put there by my fiance and her super sharp nails uh, grabbing my shirt and pulling me towards her in a uh, fit of rage. (laughs) 
And so she ripped right through it. But uh, she uh, also just walked in as soon as I said that. Why, I never. <laughs> uh, and also my sweatshirt. Well, I'll have you guys take a look at that and some of the stickers and the mask and all that stuff. So uh, look for that on the website. I'll probably get that done on Saturday. But with that, check out the website, rebellionstories.com. Come hang out with us. You can also find me on Facebook, and you can also find me on YouTube. Uh, all of those links will be in the description below. With that, my friends, have a great one. I will talk to you next week. We'll have our double episode week next week. But with that, my friends, have a great one. Thanks for listening. And if you want to support the podcast, you can do so on Patreon. Bye-bye. Old John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps, his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Hallelujah, or his soul is marching on. John Brown was a hero, undaunted, true, and brave. And Kansas knew his valor when he fought her rights to save. And now, though the grass grows green above his grave, his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. He captured Harper's Ferry with us, 19 men so few, and frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hung him for a traitor, themselves a traitorous crew, but a soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. For his soul is marching on. John Brown was John the Baptist of the Christ we are to see. Christ who of the bondman shall the liberator be. And soon throughout the sunny south the slaves shall all be free. For his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah.
flick that he heralded He looked from heaven to view On the army of the Union With its flag red, white, and blue And heaven shall sing with anthems Or the deed they mean to do For his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah of freedom then strike while strike you may the death blow of oppression in a better time and way the dawn of old john brown has brightened in the day and his soul is marching on glory glory hallelujah Cheers.